0: The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shachet now presents his lecture, A Light Unto the Nations. So let me, let me begin in the first instance in regards to this unusual topic, the a light onto the nations, subtitled The Art of Kiddush Hashem. By sharing with you something very personal. I had a very dear friend in Mill Hill, London, which is my community. He was a very successful accountant, also a chazen. He volunteered a lot of his time to teaching bar mitzvah boys he wrote a a master's thesis on jewish education which he was passionate about and in the latter years of his yes relatively young life he decided to do a rabbinic ordination what we call smicha as well and as unusual as this is he was ordained posthumously which i'll explain in a moment he was the man who nearly 30 years ago brought me down to the melhel community to become the rabbi there but sadly as he was finishing off his last part of the rabbinic ordination he got covid and he passed away and quite uniquely the organization in israel gave him his ordination even though he didn't finish that final exam posthumously and of course he's he's sorely missed in our community and the reason i share this with you is because a little known story about rabbi stanley as he was fondly known is that in as much as one of his passions was chazanut, leading services for communities, with his melodious voice, he would regularly travel for a Shabbat to a city approximately two hours away from London called Birmingham, where he would lead services on a Shabbat, something he did regularly over many years. And there was one instance, a good many years ago, about 2002, 2003, When Stanley was walking home from Shul on Shabbat, looking as he did, every bit Jewish, when he was set upon by several Middle Eastern thugs who beat him up very badly, cursing his Jewish identity in the process, causing him bodily harm, and needless to say, deep emotional scars as well. And it impacted him. You might say it really defined the next many years of his life. Now, just pausing there for a minute, frankly, many of us might have reacted somewhat negatively to that sort of experience, maybe shirked some responsibility following such an experience. Many of us might have been more inclined to go into hiding, if you will, after such an experience, figuratively speaking. But that was the point when Stanley set out on a course of studying for his master's degree in education, committing himself to educating the next generation in walking tall and proud in their Jewish identity. He decided that he was going to take this negative experience and use it in a transformative way to make an even bigger impact to generate Kiddush Hashem. You see, Stanley was attacked for no reason other than the fact that he was a Jew. Overtly so. He wore his hat on Shabbat. He walked and talked everything Jewish. You saw him and you saw Jew. He was, if you will, a walking, talking Kiddush Hashem. And if I can dare use the analogy in the same way, every Jew, regardless of religious affiliation or none, that was killed in the Holocaust or other times through history for no reason other than the fact that they were Jewish. Hence it can be stated categorically that they died, each of them, Al-Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name. Stanley was attacked because he was Jewish, essentially again, Al-Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name. My point is this, had he responded thereafter, had his reaction been one of hiding, keeping a low profile, Who would blame him? No one. But he didn't. He was back in Birmingham thereafter, praying once more, walking once more, and he went on, as I said, to teach and inspire the next generation, thus perpetuating the Kiddush Hashem going forward. In the Torah, we have the source for the prohibition against what we call Chilol Hashem, desecrating God's name, and the source for the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name. Do not desecrate my holy name, and I shall be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel. I am Hashem who sanctifies you." So here's the big question, and this is what we're going to talk about. How do I go about it? How do we go about it? We live in a world of confusion and spiritual darkness, the light of truth is absolutely hidden. God's presence is concealed in this murky existence. How do we promote God's name in the world? So the Talmud puts it succinctly. The Talmud tells us, make the name of heaven beloved through you. In other words, we are called upon to bring whichever people we encounter to an appreciation of and ultimately a closeness to God through our living example. The Talmud then elaborates to explain what this means. When we behave in ways that inspire others, by displaying integrity, by speaking gently, then we fulfill the verse, through you I will be glorified. And then the Talmud goes on to add a remarkable caveat regarding a person who doesn't behave with integrity and doesn't speak gently to others. Such a person, says the Talmud, brings God's reputation into disrepute. And what the Talmud is effectively teaching us is that we are always on somebody's radar. Whether we know it or not, other people are watching us. And regardless of how much you might try to conceal your identity, they know it, they see it, they sense it. Like it or not, you are an ambassador of God to this world. And therefore, whatever we do, Wherever we go, the words that we speak, how we speak them, every action we commit, we are either elevating God in the process or dragging Him down, as it were. And of course, this compelling idea that we are charged with carrying the name of God in the world through the way that we choose to live our lives places an incredible responsibility on us. It can be quite overwhelming. And it makes us pause and it makes us reflect on how we are essentially partners with our Creator in a very real sense. What do we mean? We always talk about partners with God. What is a partnership? Any partnership is defined by two parties working together to serve a common interest, a common set of objectives. In our context, God wants to spread truth and light in the world. And he calls on each of us, you and me, to be his partners in this endeavor. And that's how we do it. We carry out this sacred task by being living examples of the goodness and the decency and the uprightness and the inspiration, thereby ensuring people have a favorable impression of God. Because then they look at me, they think God, and if I behave the way I should, Then I uplift God in the process. So they have a favorable impression of God and those that follow him. The first example of that, of course, is Abraham, our patriarch, the founding father of Judaism, if you will. He's our standard bearer in this regard. What did he do? He was the first to spread the light of godliness in a world of otherwise pagan idolatry. And he influenced countless people in the process. But how did he do so? He did it through kindness. He did it through his resolute uprightness. He did it by demonstrating so many examples in his life. He went out to battle to save his nephew Lot and others who had been captured in that war and then at the same time refused to take any of the spoils of the war. As we well know, he kept his tent open on all sides, welcoming wayfarers no matter who they were and where they came from. He was a pillar of light and compassion. He was unerringly straight and ethical in all of his business dealings. And as his eternal offspring, we are called on to live the same way. So I'd like to, at this point, consider the following. What does it really mean when we say that we either elevate God or demote him through our choice actions. Well, you know, there's a fascinating discussion amongst Talmudic sages about what is the most important passage in the Torah. And to be honest with you, I can ask you all the same question. Each of us would have our own personal and maybe subjective answer. And you're entitled to your own opinion, as the rabbis in the Talmud were. If I asked you, what do you consider to be the most significant passage in the Torah, you will have your own idea of what you consider to be the most important passage and your own personal reasons for why you might consider that passage to be the most important. And that's the way it was in the Talmud as well. There were different rabbis who had different opinions. Let's consider what those opinions were. The great Hillel and the famous Rabbi Akiva say, it is the verse, v'ahavta lorayacha kamocha," love your neighbor as yourself. That makes sense. All about spreading the love, sharing the love, that's important. They considered that to be the single most important verse in the Torah. Another rabbi called Rabbi Simloi said that there is actually, as far as he's concerned, a more important verse, which actually says, mishpat chesed leches imalakecha, which means to act justly and to love goodness. And that kind of makes sense too, right? It's more than just about spreading the love he's emphasizing that more important than just loving everybody and showing respect to everybody is also to act justly in your engagements with other people and to love goodness. Then comes along Ben-Azai, and he says we find a yet even more embracing principle still. And he quotes a verse from the beginning of Genesis which tells us a human being is made in the image of God. And here's my problem. The first two views, Hillel, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Similoi, they make perfect sense. They're talking about love, they're talking about justice, they're talking about acts of goodness. These are foundational mitzvot of Judaism. These are actually, you might say, even universal principles. The love of a neighbor, acts of justness and kindness, they're divine commandments. They are categorical directives about how we are supposed to conduct our lives. But what on earth is Ben-Azai talking about? Man was created in the image of God. How does the verse, a human being is made in the image of God, represent the most important passage of the Torah? It's not even a call to action. It's a statement of fact. It's just, if you will, maybe even an abstract idea. And yet, the point is that Ben-Azai understood that how you perceive yourself, is the most important fact about you. How you see yourself is the framework for every subsequent decision that you are going to make in life. If you believe that a human being is only an animal, then you will behave accordingly. If you believe, on the other hand, that to be human is to be divine, then you will strive to be a divine human being. What is it that wonderful anecdote they tell about Charles, who goes to his mom, he says, Mom, where do we come from? And mom says, Well, there was God, and God created Adam and Eve, and then they had children, and they had children, they had children, and here we are today. Okay. He goes, Dad, Dad, where do we come from? And dad says, Well, once upon a time, there was a monkey, and then the monkeys had others, and then they evolved, and over the course of time, you came about. And now he's perturbed, he's confused. He goes back to mom, and he says, Mom, I don't understand. You say we come from God, Adam and Eve. Dad says, we come from monkeys. Mom says, son, it's very simple. I was talking to you about my side of the family and Dad's talking to you about his side of the family. If you believe that a human being is no different to an animal, again, you will behave accordingly. If you believe that to be human is to be divine, you're gonna always strive to be a divine human being, to do God's work, the work of righteousness, mitzvot, love. Out of your philosophy of humanity, will naturally flow that righteousness. You know, Plato believed that the world was not created ex nihilo, but is rather formed from primordial matter. And this underlying matter, as far as he was concerned, had always existed, and everything in this world is simply a development of that matter. The matter is made to grow, so plants exist. The plants are made to move, so animals exist. The animals are made to think, and so man exists. But everything, as far as Plato is concerned, still shares the same underlying matter. And the greater the entity never entirely differs from the lesser one. Actually, Rambam, Maimonides, explains in his Guide for the Perplexed, the Platonists believe in a primordial matter that has existed as long as God has and that the universe is not created from nothing. God's role is more like a smith who organizes the matter into certain forms, and since nothing new is ever really created, a human being is not a new creation over an animal, rather shares his material existence with the lower creations. That was Plato's thinking. And the problem is when you believe that, then you have no real purpose in this world. Then you have no ambassadorship any more or less than an animal. You might remember the famous story, the case of a young child, Isaiah Dickerson, that fell into the gorilla closure at the zoo, at the Cincinnati Zoo, back in, I think it was 2016. The gorilla, Harambe was killed in order to save the life of the little child. And many voices echoing Plato rang out to ask why the child's life was more valuable than that of the animal that was killed. The Torah's view, of course, is fundamentally different. The world is created out of absolute nothingness. And just as God creates the form or matter or nature of each single creation, he also creates its matter. With creatio ex nihilo in place, the Torah essentially opens the door to a whole new view that a human being is not merely an animal with some highly developed intellect, but a human being is an entirely new creation. And thus in every respect, man is infinitely superior, holier, and therefore everything he or she does has to be different. We eat differently than an animal. We sleep differently than an animal and in all of our ways, we are representing our creator and he is represented and reflected in and through us. That is Kiddush Hashem. The famous philosopher Thomas Carlyle said, tell me a man's religion and I will tell you what they are and what they will become. Ben Azai basically said, tell me how a man precedes himself and I'll tell you what their values and capacity for righteousness is. The most important verse in the Torah says, Benazai is that man was made in the image of God. If you see yourself as an extension of God, then you will come to appreciate that you represent God to the world. And thus your actions will determine whether God is elevated or otherwise, because from your awareness flows your conduct. What you see in the mirror will be what you pursue in the world. It will be the playbook for your ethics, and it will determine whether you pursue being a source of light and inspiration onto the world or not, as the case may be. One of my favorite stories, which I've shared here in the past, and actually for the first time when lecturing in Budapest earlier this year, I verified firsthand. It's the scene in a tiny town in Alaska, and the young Chabad rabbi walks into the mayor's office and actually announces his presence. I'm here to bring the spice and spirit of Judaism to the Jews here in this town and throughout the rest of Alaska. And the mayor says, that's great, that's wonderful. But there are actually no Jews here in this particular town. And this is Alaska, of course. The trek from point A to point B can be quite tedious and challenging. says, what, no Jews at all, no synagogue, nothing? No, absolutely nothing. He says, you know what, I made the journey, I made the trek, at the very least, can I at least go into a a local school and maybe talk to the school children about Judaism, universal laws, Noahide laws, et cetera, sure. Arrangements are made that same afternoon, and the rabbi is standing there in front of the school assembly and giving them a whole talk all about what Judaism is and so on and so forth. And then he asks the question, he goes, who over here has ever seen a Jew? And one little fair-haired girl raised her hand and said, I have, my mom. Reminds me of a time I walked into a school near my shul in my community, Eitz Chaim, and I had a shofar behind my back on the day before Rosh Hashanah, and I said, now what are we gonna see in shul tomorrow that we don't see all year round? And one little girl raised her hand and said, my mom, but that's another story. (laughs) The rabbi considered, what on earth is he going to say? to this girl. What could he possibly say? What can he relate? He later met up with the mother and this girl. What kind of message can he impart to such deeply assimilated souls? Go to synagogue, there is no, join other Jews, social club, whatever, nothing exists. They're the only ones in town. Leave? That's hardly going to go down well. But he left her with a sterling thought that is as penetrating as it is simple. He said, you know, for Jews there is a very special day each week and it is called Shabbat. Jewish mothers and daughters throughout the world have a special custom where they light candles before sunset, before the onset of this Shabbat, and these candles symbolize illumination and warmth and peace. And then he added something which I find incredibly moving, because New Zealand and Alaska are essentially the two furthest stretches of the universe separated by about 22 hours. And he said to the girl the following, he says, you know, that candle lighting will start in the first instance before sunset in New Zealand. And it'll continue on and on as a chain reaction all the way through until here in Alaska. He says to her, be sure to light your candle. You are the last link on the chain. The rest of the world is waiting for you. Could you imagine what the world would be like if we all paused long enough to think ourselves as the last link on the chain? To dare consider that the rest of the world is waiting for you. That is the ultimate challenge for the Jew, to realize that no act is committed in isolation, that everything we do creates a ripple effect. It could be a trivial deed. It could be something we really don't give too much consideration to. Again, a simple word, a smile, A kind gesture of whatever sort. But everything you do resonates and can have compelling effects and consequences reverberating beyond your immediate confines and echoing throughout the course of history. And our sages actually told us to us at the outset when they made the observation about how everything else in creation was created en masse, was brought into being en masse. Vegetation, animal kingdom, whatever else besides, but man was created alone, singular. Why? So that he can say, for me was this world created. Each of us must believe the world was created for me, and if the world was created for me, then the rest of the world is waiting for me to create my ripple effect, to make the differences that will positively affect all of mankind, to generate a kiddush Hashem, to bring God into this world and partner Him in that process. Because you see, the way of Judaism is particular, but the concern of Judaism, is universal. Abraham was promised that through you all the families of all the nations of the world will be blessed. Our message isn't just for ourselves alone. How so? Well, we don't seek, of course, to convert others. We know that. Judaism differs fundamentally from other faiths in that regard. We believe that the righteous of all the nations have value in who and what they are, regardless. And that they all have, therefore, by living a virtuous lifestyle a share in the world to come as long as they live in accordance with righteousness and their own predetermined role but we do seek to be living examples reflections of god's light an inspiration to others to find their own way onto god what is an ambassador an ambassador has his or her own particular way onto uh, practice and approach how they choose to live their own lives you could be a chinese ambassador in the united states And you have your own rituals and you have your own customs that you might conduct within your own closed environment. That's personal to them. But insofar as the broader role is concerned, insofar as the broader objective is concerned, their concerns are universal. And so it is with Jews and Judaism as well. And You know what? Others understood this about us. Winston Churchill said, the West owes to the Jews a system of ethics. Even if it would be separated from the supernatural, it would be incomparable, the most precious possession of all of mankind. And at a time when we have witnessed, and we continue to witness, alas, the resurgence of anti-Semitism, we know that we have enemies, but we also have friends. We have critics but we also know there are those who, without seeking to necessarily become Jewish, are righteous as they draw their inspiration from Jewish life. We owe it to them as much as to ourselves to be faithful to our task to be God's ambassadors on earth. So with that in mind, I'd like you to consider the following two stories as they happen. They both, not surprisingly, take place in an airport because, let's face it, all too often, airports are those hotbeds for stress, and all too often there are the best and worst of man or woman that can be brought out in an airport. I heard both these stories firsthand. The first happened with Rabbi Pesach Kron, the legendary speaker and storyteller, and the story he likes to often retell because of the bigger story it tells. He was en route to Toronto, Canada to give a lecture. He goes through security, he empties his pockets before stepping into the scanner, He retrieves his items and he goes to wait, sitting by his Air Canada gate. A short while later, he sees two security personnel, fully loaded, walking around the gates, eyeing up the passengers. Never a good feeling when you're in the airport. And then their eyes are on him and they start walking towards him. Needless to say, he becomes a little bit anxious. Sir, do you have your cell phone on you? He says, yes. You sure? Starts putting his hand in his pocket, other pocket, other pocket. Suddenly realizes, actually, no, I don't. Sir, is this your cell phone? Oh my goodness, yes, it is. Well, you left it at security and we realized as you started to walk away, so we got someone else to cover for us and we went out to find you. And then they added the following. Ordinarily, we wouldn't bother. We just put it in and lost it found and it's the passenger's problem to realize that they lost it and have to go and retrieve it and claim it. But you passed through security and you actually thanked us. You said thank you for what you do in keeping our airports safe. No one ever talks to us. No one ever really looks at us. But more than that, you made us feel good about what we do. So we were determined to find you and return your phone to you personally. That's the power of your every single act. That's the ripple effect. That's Kiddush Hashem. Now the other story, Las Vegas airport. It's a jet blue flight. It's delayed by an hour, and then another hour, and then yet another hour, and we all know that feeling, and we all know the tensions that can build when airlines are not forthcoming about what's happening. There's a guy there who I know personally. His name is Frank, great guy, not Jewish. He observes the following. He says, up steps a man, long black coat, big black hat, long peyote and an equally long beard. I'm not going to ask what he was doing in Vegas. And he starts, and he starts kicking off. And inasmuch as much as there was a lot of moaning generally from the passengers and all kinds of exasperation, he decided he's going to be the confrontational one and the particularly loud one, the in-your-face one. And as Frank, who observed all of this, told me after, What do you think? This is coming from a non-Jew, his perspective. He says to me, what do you think goes through the mind of an innocent airline personnel? Or even if not so innocent, but what do you think goes through their mind when confronted with such hostility by somebody who looks so overtly Jewish? And maybe, he suggests, just maybe somewhere down the line, this same personnel starts harboring some anti-Semitic sentiment as a result and maybe just maybe they or someone with whom they then shared their experience or sentiment one day vents against a jew or maybe even attacks a jew on the street just because i should stress here it doesn't justify or excuse the actions it doesn't justify or excuse the attack nothing but nothing excuses anti-semitism in any way shape or form whatsoever but where did it all begin maybe That's the deleterious consequences of your negative actions. That's the other kind of ripple effect. That's Chilol Hashem. The famous Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, lived at the time when trades were revolutionizing the travel industry. And the saintly rabbi once observed a peasant helping himself to some of the steel that was laid down for track. And he says to him, what are you doing? He says, listen rabbi, steel is a valuable commodity and I don't think anyone's gonna miss this solitary piece of track. But the rabbi says it's train track, it's needed. And the man counters thousands of miles of steel track has been laid, this one piece of track won't make a difference. Now we all appreciate the inherent absurdity or the naivete of the peasant. But that's the problem, is it not? When you choose to do your own thing, thinking that what I do and what I say and how I conduct myself is my business and doesn't affect anyone else, to you it might be a solitary piece of track when you think you're doing what you want. And even as you think what you do makes no difference to others, the reality is you risk derailing everyone else in the process. Seder night, we all sit around our tables The children ask the manishtana. And then we respond with that famous passage, avodim hainu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and we start telling the Exodus story. And then we conclude, if God had not taken us and our ancestors out from Egypt, we would still be enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. What does that actually mean? Had we not experienced the Exodus, we'd still be enslaved over there? Would no other people come along, no other nation at some point, and emancipate us? Could there not have been other redeeming factors that would have led to our liberty? And the point I suggest to you is this, history turns on key moments, single decisions, a single act, a single word that drives events down one path or another. And it's enough to leave a person wondering what would have happened if things had gone differently. There's a book called What If? Alternative History, in which experts consider the question of several recent centuries, biggest turning points, what if? Hitler Yamach Shumai, had been assassinated in the 1930s at the attempt. What if the South had won the U.S. Civil War? What if President Kennedy had survived the assassination on November? What if Napoleon had kept going and captured Moscow? All of these are momentous. But the most consequential what if of all time is the what if of the Haggadah. If the Jews had stayed in Egypt, what if we would have had an entirely different history of the world? because the movement of the Jews from slavery to freedom transformed the Jewish people and our ethics, and in doing so, ultimately, transformed the whole moral landscape of the world. The Ten Commandments that God gave us, which teaches us that he is the supreme power who hears the cry of the oppressed and intervenes in history to liberate slaves. It taught us that neither money nor power nor any political system has the right to be tyrannical that freedom and justice must belong to all and that under God, all human beings are equal and all human beings are equally precious because as we said, as Benaziah highlighted, we're all created in his image. Paul Johnson, the famous historian, a Catholic, wrote once of the great accounts of the Jewish people and in summing up he said, Judaism's contribution is one way of summing up 4,000 years of Jewish history is to ask ourselves, what would have happened if the human race had no Jewish people coming into being? And then he answered and he said, certainly the world without Jews would have been a radically different place. Humanity might have eventually stumbled along the great Jewish discoveries, but we can't be sure. All the great conceptual discoveries of the intellect seem obvious and inescapable once they're revealed. But it requires a special genius to formulate them for the first time. The Jew had this gift. It's a beautiful tribute. That was Johnson's what if the Jews didn't come into being. But let's remember the Haggadah entertains the possibility. If none of that ever happened, it asks what if our ancestors never left Egypt? You see, if God hadn't taken us out from Egypt, there would be no absolute values. There would be no real morals, just situational ethics and a subjective value system. If God had not taken us out from Egypt, then yes, we would still be slaves. By definition, we would be functioning with a barbaric psyche, much like the Egyptians of yesteryear. We would be Platonists, like Plato. We would consider ourselves no different to an animal. We'd be enslaved to our own animalistic traits and appetitive powers rather than appreciating that we were made in the image of the divine. But God did take us out and he did give us the Ten Commandments and he did make us trailblazers to civilization and he did task us with being a light onto the nations and he did enjoin us to create a kiddush Hashem wherever we go and to always avoid chelal Hashem in whatever we do. And daily we are faced with a similar question that we have to ask ourselves. What if? What if we lose sight of what it means to be a light unto the nations? What if we neglect the truth of man having been created in the image of God? What if we don't appreciate the enormity of each action we commit and the ripple effects that get generated as a result? Our ancestors look toward us from across a hundred centuries to see whether the if that we choose will be one in which we strive to be an inspiration and source of continued blessings to ourselves and to all the peoples of the world. I once met somebody in broadcasting who told me how at the beginning of his career he would always take off his yarmulke as soon as he came to the car park, to the parking lot of his office. Pulled up, take off the yarmulke, put it in the glove compartment, go upstairs. And one day he met with a very famous anchorman called Trevor MacDonald, Sir Trevor McDonald, of all places, in the men's room. And Trevor, who was a black man, turned to him and said, oh, you're the guy from upstairs. I see you every morning, and I've got to ask you a question. You get early, I get here early. Why do you remove your head covering each morning as you step out of your car? And the young man, Charles, explained, I don't want to look different. I don't want to be different. I don't want to stand out. At which point, Trevor turned to him and said, I am, and this is going back many, many, many years ago, I am the only black person in this building apart from the cleaner. How should that make me feel? When I walk into a boardroom, I immediately sense my difference. I'm the only black man there. And then he pinched the skin of his cheek and he looked at Charles and said, you see this? This is who I am. It doesn't wash off. Do you know why My old friend Stanley, as I began with, took Kiddush Hashem and Chilol Hashem so seriously, so personally, because he knew, as we must all know, with every fiber of his being, that this is who I am. It doesn't wash off. Because wherever you go, whatever you do, you may not see it, but everybody else does. Make no mistake about it. You know, many years ago, there was... Once again, I mean, it's unfortunately ongoing now. There was a battle in Israel with Gaza. And at one point, there were some soldiers who actually killed a terrorist and then posed for a picture standing on his dead body. And that picture, and I still remember this, made its way into newspapers all across the world, showing, you know, look at the Israelis, look how they behave, etc. And to that, there was incredible and immediate public outcry from the Jewish community. Ah! Typical media anti-Semitism. They, that is the terrorists and others besides, they do far worse and they celebrate whenever there's a terrorist attack and they dance in the streets and they hand out candy. Here we have one infraction and the media make a whole spiel out of it. Well, to be sure, I have no doubt that the media of course do it for their own nefarious motives. But you know why they're triggered by such imagery? because these are Israeli soldiers. These are Jewish soldiers. You cannot, on the one hand, hold yourself to a higher standard and then at the same time do things that run counter to those very standards. You cannot, on the one hand, claim to be the flag bearer of morality and then do something that is essentially grossly immoral. You can't have it both ways. And when you do, Yes, again, the rest of the world will see it, will know it, will be triggered by it, and will hold you to account for it. Again, I stress, it doesn't justify their intent, but just remember, you brought it on yourself. When my father, Releba Sholem, took a trip to Israel back in the early 50s, he diarized his whole trip and he later submitted the diary to the Rebbe. And in it, he included some fascinating facts including how he managed to make his way to the Kotel, which was then under Jordanian rule. And access was denied to Jews. With a beret on his head, a pipe in his mouth, and a passport that said Emmanuel Shachet, but can also be read as Emmanuel Shoshay, he passed himself off as French and stood at the wall praying long before so many other Jews over the course of the many decades afterwards had a chance to ever do so. But he also in his diary to the Rebbe mentioned how he took excess weight in his suitcase and managed to get away with it without charge. And the Rebbe pulled him up on this point and said to him that to all intent and purposes, it's stealing from the airline and could have been a chilul Hashem. Write to the airline, said the Rebbe, tell them what you did, how much excess weight you were, and offer to pay it back. Can you imagine that? El Al were so blown away with the story that they wrote back to my father saying, we're not going to charge you for the excess that you owe, but you have to let us publish the story in their magazine or whatever they had then. Which they did. And that's what you call turning a potential Hillel Hashem into a Kiddush Hashem. In every respect, the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem is deeply transformational. It transforms us into people who look to promote truth and values and goodness in the world who embrace responsibility for spreading the love of of God and light throughout the world. And by cultivating a consciousness for how we are perceived by others, we then learn to moderate our own behavior and ensure that our conduct therefore always meets those highest ethical standards. And So as a final thought about Kiddush Hashem, one very famous story that we know, or more precisely the lack thereof, was the story of Moshe hitting the rock to produce water, to quench the thirst of the people, rather than speaking to the rock as God directed. And the response of God thereafter is, because you did not sufficiently believe in me to sanctify me in their midst, because you didn't, l'hak you didn't create Kiddush Hashem, therefore you will not go into the land of Israel. And I have two questions on this. Number one, of all the scenarios through which God wanted Moshe to make a Kiddush Hashem, why is this the story with the rock chosen? And question two, why was the selected punishment denial into the land of Israel? And the answer I suggest to you is this. Twice Moshe had an encounter with a rock. The first time was 40 years earlier at the very onset when Jews left Egypt. There, God tells Moshe indeed to hit the rock. Now 40 years on, prior to entry into the land of Israel, God instructs Moshe to speak to the rock. Why? Well, the first time when God tells Moshe to hit the rock, he refers to the rock as, as tsur. In this instance, prior to the entry into the land of Israel, God says, speak to the sela." Both words, tsur and sela, mean rock. But tsur is a rock that is hard, not just on the exterior, but every bit on the interior as well. A sela is a rock that's only hard on the surface. Already just beneath the surface lies the water. Speaking alone may be all that's required. Earlier on in time, when the people just came out of Egypt, they're in a state of tsura they're hard on the outside, they're hard on the inside, they're unrefined, they're hardened from their Egyptian experience. At that point, God says, strike. But now they're in a state of selah. They've grown, they've matured. Whatever hardness is only skin deep. Speak to them, God said. Musha didn't make that transformation to a changed generation. And perhaps the loyal leader didn't want to make that change, and as such, says God, this is not your destiny. You are indeed the teacher of all Jews throughout all the ages but you were the leader of the generation that came out from Egypt, the leader of a people in a particular circumstance. This is a different people. In a different time, entering into a different era, someone else is going to take them in. And the reason I suggest to you that this scenario is selected to make the point about Kiddush Hashem goes back to the Talmud we cited at the outset. There are two states of consciousness that we grapple with and encounter in other people and we have to get to grips with it and deal with it accordingly. In every rock there is water. Sometimes it's deep inside, sometimes it's more surface-like. Every rock can produce water, every rock has a soul which can produce waters of light and inspiration. But if we hit the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, if we're harsh, if we're aggressive, if we're unethical, if we're confrontational, instead of being kind and soft and gentle, then because you did not believe in me to sanctify me, you will not go into the promised land. You're denying yourself and you're denying redemption to the world. You're not serving your purpose of being God's ambassador to this universe. You're not living up to your standard of having been made in the image of God. And so I'll conclude with this, one of my favorite stories, Rab Eli Melech of Luzinsk, was sitting at his Friday night Shabbos table it was the portion of Bo where we read the story of the Exodus, and he's leading a Hasidic gathering, a tish, as it's called, a song, holy words of inspiration. And in attendance was one of his disciples, Rabbi Moshe Leib of Sussef, who later went on to become a great Hasidic giant in his own right. And at one point, Rabbi Elimelech looked to him, and he asked him and encouraged him to share a thought. And at first he was reluctant, but Rabbi Elimelech pushed and encouraged, and finally he made the simple observation. He says, you know, we're reading now the story of the Exodus. And the festival of Pesach is so called, why? Because Passover, right? Asher Pesach Hashem, the language of the Torah, Pesach Hashem al bate b'nei Yisrael, which translates, and we always translate it to mean, God jumped over the houses of the Jewish people. Hence, it's called Pesach, Passover. But he said, but, but the word is Pesach al, the word Hebrew word al does not mean over. The Hebrew word al means on. And he says that, If you translate the verse literally, God jumped on the homes of the Jewish people. What does that mean? And he went on to explain, God gave the Jewish nation an instruction to take a sheep to be brought as a sacrifice. That sheep was the deity of the Egyptians, the taskmasters for more than two centuries. Thus taking the sheep involved great risk and was a sacrifice in itself. When God came with the angels down into Egypt, and saw the extreme and exalted sacrifice being demonstrated by the Jewish nation, living in that exalted high state as ambassadors of God then and there in the depths of depravity in Egypt, then they proceeded to be Pasach al-Botz ibn Israel. God and the angels jumped and danced on the Jewish homes, singing, ayid, here lives a Jew, here lives a Jew. And then he proceeded to jump up on the table, dancing and pointing to Rebelli Malach, and he's saying, adovain ta'yid, adovain ta'yid. Here lives a Jew, here lives a Jew. Friends, remember, wherever you go, whatever you do, people are watching, looking, pointing, saying, There lives a Jew, there goes a Jew, there is an ambassador of God, there is a righteous human being, there indeed goes God himself and I shall be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel. I am Hashem who sanctifies you. Get a little closer to me, says God. Be my partner. Finish the work that I have begun. Seize the minute. Find your eternity in every single moment. Bring holiness into every dimension of your life. Don't just practice Judaism. Put Judaism into practice. Transform your slice of the world and bring salvation and everlasting holiness To this universe for once and for all, forevermore. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings, and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.